on November the 3rd, the non-profit World Preservation Foundation, co-hosted with Dodds Parliamentary Services, a unique gathering at the historic Central Hall Westminster in London, with speakers from government, science, media and advocacy organisations, to discuss the increasingly evident effects of climate change and explain how the production of food, and in particular livestock raising, is seriously impacting global warming, biodiversity loss, water shortages and more. Leaders Preserving Our Future, Pace and Priorities on Climate Change was attended by experts and dignitaries such as the Duchess of Norfolk, High Commissioner for Antigua and Barbuda, Dr. Carl Roberts, Dr. Esther Vandervoort, a representative from the United Nations Environment Programme and the ambassadors of such countries as Russia, Bolivia, Nepal and others. The highlight of the afternoon was the presence of Supreme Master Ching Hai, who delivered a message via video on solving the large environmental crisis of concern in the meeting, as well as urging leaders and co-citizens alike to make courageous, earth-saving changes. We now invite you to join us the Light Conference, Leaders Preserving Our Future, Pace and Priorities on Climate Change, on November the 3rd, 2010, in Westminster, London, in the United Kingdom. So, just to welcome you all to today's conference, Leaders Preserving Our Future, Pace and Priorities on Climate Change, which is jointly organised by Dodds and the World Preservation Foundation. And we really are delighted to have you here, particularly in the circumstance. This conference has been organised with a very specific aim in mind. It's to raise awareness about the urgency of having a near-term solution for climate change and to highlight one of the most effective solutions to achieve this. As you will notice, we've got a lot of speakers today, many of them sitting next to me even as I speak, and they're from different scientific fields and very many prestigious organisations. So I'm going to start by introducing our first speaker, who is Jeff Tanzi. Jeff is a trustee of the Food Ethics Council in the United Kingdom and one of the six recipients of the Joseph Roundtree Visionaries Award. He's also winner of the Derek Cooper Award for Best Food Campaigner and Educator, and today he'll address the conference on how we can ensure food security from global to local level in the face of water scarcity and climate change. So if you'd put your hands together, please, for our first speaker, Mr. Right, thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks to the Foundation for the invitation to speak here. The Food Ethics Council is an independent charity that seeks to put ethical thinking at the heart of our discussions on food. And that means looking at social justice and fairer decisions within the framework of the bigger picture. I'm speaking here personally, but drawing on some of the work of the Council. But first, let's look at today's world. We have a dysfunctional food system, despite having the capacity to feed everyone well. It leaves getting on for a billion people hungry, well over that, overweight or obese, and even more with micronutrient deficiencies. The poor are affected most. Most people still work in agriculture globally. Most poor people are still in the rural areas. 
and women are often the most badly affected. Yet they're also responsible for the majority of food produced and hold much knowledge about farming in challenging and difficult environments around the world. Now, achieving food security for all is a complex challenge and it's got many ingredients and there are lots of definitions. After the first world food crisis in the 1970s, the focus was on grain reserves, as this quote illustrates. Now, this broader definition from the FAO summit in 1996 is usually linked to thinking about food security in terms of three words. Accessibility, availability, and affordability. But it actually neglects how food is produced and distributed and the sustainability of that. Some more recent thinking looks at sustainable food systems where you're very clear about what the goals are. It includes the three A's, but embeds them in systems that are sustainable and resilient. Increasingly, however, peasants' movements seek food sovereignty, which adds who has what power and control in the system into the equation. Now, achieving food security requires action from the global to the household level. It also means that no one suffers fear and anxiety about where and when the next meal will come from and is confident of that continuing. And that's a confidence that climate change could shatter for all of us. The long-term worst-case scenarios see farming becoming impossible in many tropical latitudes, failing monsoons in India, loss of the Amazon rainforest, widespread desertification in Africa and elsewhere leading to population movements the like of which we have never seen. The best single way of dealing with these is not to go there, to change our practices now before it's too late. The least bad scenarios suggest major disruptions in key producing areas, yield declines in many areas in the tropics and surrounding temperate areas, with perhaps some advantage to the higher latitudes. All see a loss of biodiversity and agricultural biodiversity. Now, these trends are often talked about in terms of 2 to 6 degree average rise in temperature, but this really is misleading. For climate change will, indeed, is already destabilising weather patterns, leading to more and more extreme events of increasing intensity, from floods, as we saw recently in Pakistan and Thailand, which will be exacerbated for coastal areas, and we're in one, looking at the Thames, as sea levels rise with melting ice caps and glaciers to winds and droughts and fires, as we saw in Russia recently. Now, these extremes will make harvests less predictable. If several coincide in one year, they may lead to major food shortages of core commodities and huge price rises. Price fluctuations and rises will indeed already have been compounded by competition over scarce resources, using land for agrofuels and commodity price speculation as we saw particularly in 2007 and 8, when over 100 million people were driven into hunger and governments fell. Now, although the poor and most marginalised are the first to suffer from climate change, it will affect everyone, including us here, and push food prices up and disrupt supply chains. Now, we need to meet these challenges in ways that embed social justice into the heart of our approach. Otherwise, it will fail. As our inquiry into food and fairness discussed in a recent report, Food Justice, this means addressing the issues about fair shares, fair say, and fair play in tackling the problems in the food system and climate change. 
But it also is about recognising what can be done within a food system framework and what requires changes to the rules of the game. Now, as Tim Jackson said in his eloquent evidence to the Commission, the rich really need to rethink what we mean by prosperity and develop a new kind of ecological economics that's not based on the growth paradigm, what he calls prosperity without growth. For us in Britain and Europe, that means questioning assumptions, such as that we can eat what we want, when we want, from wherever we want. It means accepting responsibility for the generation of greenhouse gas emissions, as well as the extent of our ecological debt, as our footprint spreads much more widely over the world than our numbers justify, thanks in significant part to our need for animal feed. So it requires innovation, but not just in technology, where so much of the focus goes. And even there, the focus is often on finding ways that are essentially about allowing us to carry on doing what we do now, such as agrofuels, rather than change. And in reality, we need innovation that allows us to do things differently, not just technologically, but socially, politically and economically. We need to rethink the way we produce food, to move from intensive systems which are fossil fuel-based to farming systems that are more agroecologically sound and resilient. As has been argued in various reports over the last few years, the global report at the top, the one from the National Academy of Sciences in the States. But we do also need to rethink what we consume. Whether or not we can feed a world with a population likely to stabilise at 9.5 billion people depends upon what they all eat and the impact of producing that food on our life support systems. Now, it wouldn't be sustainable nor healthy, for example, for global meat and dairy consumption levels to rise to that of the American or European level. Food accounts for about 20% of total UK greenhouse gas emissions by consumption, and that rises to 30% if you include indirect emissions from global land use changes. Meat and dairy is about 7 to 8%. Agriculture globally also uses about 70% of the water that's abstracted, and the UK imports about two-thirds of the virtual water it uses in food. And the way we do things at the moment increases the loss of biodiversity and agricultural biodiversity. So, apart from action to change on production, we also need action on waste and consumption. To reduce the waste built into systems through the standards and production processes and supply chains to the waste that occurs domestically and in catering. Now, the Food Ethics Council, along with WWF, has been looking at consumption of meat and dairy because this is a significant part of our greenhouse gases in the UK, and you'll hear more from WWF this afternoon. And our latest report is actually out on Friday. Now, the work focused on consumption-related emissions because a production focus ignores the emissions that arise when production is done abroad, so-called offshoring. Now, one essential in this is dialogue with the producers so that they are able to engage with and see the calls for eating less meat, for example, as an opportunity in developing a more equitable, resilient and sustainable food system. The producers can also give the practical insights of the perhaps unintended consequences of different policies. So I think we need to see this as a time of opportunity as well as danger. If we are to avoid in the future the sense of deja vu I get today when I look back at the world food crisis in the 70s, 
as this quote illustrates when I first started working on food policy. We actually need creative solutions from the bottom up with an enabling frameworks that do not disadvantage the poor. Now, food is a lens through which to look at the problems we face. It connects peoples, and it's an opportunity because it's something that everyone needs. And it's a way of helping people understand both the importance of dealing with climate change and the things that can be done about it. And the way we deal with food links sustainability, health of people and planet, and social justice, and that includes gender equality. And I look forward to hearing more detail about the other areas as we go throughout the day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. Our next speaker is David Vaughan. Uh, Professor David Vaughan is a climate scientist at the British Antarctic Survey and was coordinating lead author of the IPCC fourth assessment report, and he's just about to begin the same role in the fifth assessment. His research focuses on the role of ice sheets, the threat of climate change and rising sea levels. Professor Vaughan will now speak about ice melt in Antarctica in terms of its effect, severity, urgency, and potential consequences. Please put your hands together. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I speak today as a working scientist rather than a representative of the IPCC, but I do have those roles that were pointed out. Sea level rise is somewhat the poster child of climate change, partly because people can really understand, quite simply, what the impacts are. That's actually an illusion. Some of the impacts are quite subtle and difficult to understand, and we're going to talk about some of those in this talk. Sea level rise has two aspects that speak to the climate change debate. One is the longevity of the response that's provoked by climate change that might go on for many, many centuries after uh, carbon emissions have stabilised. And the other is that there is really no going back, that once sea level rise begins, then it is here to stay for a considerable period. And the only rational response in the short term, let's say less than 200 years, is adaptation. Um, climate change is being provoked by increasing carbon dioxide uh, and methane, greenhouse gases. I think there's very little doubt about that. And throughout geological history, as temperature has risen, carbon dioxide and greenhouse uh, gases have risen, so has sea level. The question is really what's going to happen in the future. And there are several different sources of sea level rise within the Earth system. One is the straightforward expansion of the oceans as the temperatures rise, Actually, this takes many decades, perhaps even longer than that, before the heat really gets into the deeper parts of the ocean and the full effects of ocean expansion are uh, seen. Um, then we have the loss of mountain glaciers around the world and throughout the world, mountain glaciers are now being lost in virtually every glaciated mountain range. This is just one example I showed it to somebody the other day while I was trying to put this together, and they said, that's a lot of ice. And indeed it is. This is just one glacier. Elsewhere there are, in the polar regions, two large ice sheets, one in Greenland and one in Antarctica. Each has the capacity, the ice in it, to raise global sea level by many metres. And we are now seeing some losses in those areas. The key issue here is that once loss from these ice sheets is provoked, once it's driven, then 
it may continue for many, many centuries. Sea level is currently rising and has been increasing in the rate that it's rising throughout uh, the 20th century. We are now at three millimetres a year. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a one-way street. It's very hard to imagine that the losses of ice uh, uh, that contribute primarily to this are actually going to decrease in the near future. So three millimetres a year adds up to three centimetres per decade, and by the time we're at a century, it's starting to look like a substantial amount. The IPCC's last projections of sea level rise were something between 19 centimetres and 58 centimetres by the end of 2100. However, some of the effects that the authors of that report were very suspicious were going to start showing um, were not included in that projection. And they took a somewhat brave, in my opinion, view of saying that really isn't the science to include all of these effects, specifically the ice sheet's response to changing atmospheric and ocean temperatures, into those projections. So those projections were, in a sense, uh, lacking in one of the key elements. Since that last IPCC report has gone on, we have developed substantial numbers, four separate ways of measuring the ice loss from these two major ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland. And you can see that there are some large areas where ice loss is now persistent year to year and is sufficient that it's making a significant contribution to that three millimetres a year of global sea rise. Uh, elsewhere around the Antarctic Peninsula, we've seen the loss of many ice shelves. This one in the background, Wilkins Ice Shelf, was the most recent one to really hit the headlines, but actually... The headline news is not the one that I want you to take away. The smaller diagram to the right-hand side shows that this pattern has been persistent all the way along the Antarctic Peninsula where ice shells have been retreating over a considerable period, at least the last 50 years. Um, those are the projections from the IPCC. However, if we start to think about what those projections might look like if we really do include realistic contributions from uh, ice sheets, then perhaps we can think of, you know, certainly the left-hand diagram shows quite a moderate scenario that continues the rate of sea level rise over the last uh, 150 years, shown in the green line, in a relatively simple progression and reaches half a metre by 2100. And a more aggressive increase in the rate of ice loss from Antarctica and Greenland would push us up to something like the right-hand side diagram, where we have about 1.4 metres by 2100. Now, these are still well short of the real doomsday scenarios that some um, commentators, even some scientists, have been talking about. And I actually think that that right-hand side does represent something close to an upper limit on the likely sea level rise by 2100. However, by the time we get to 2100 in that scenario, we're seeing sea level rise at a rate of about 10 times its current uh, rate. What does this really mean? It's very hard to understand really what, let's say, a metre of sea level rise actually means. Well, let's focus on London because we're here and you know, along with 1.25 million other people and an enormous amount of property and assets close to sea level. In the UK, we've been very responsive to flooding events in the past and have raised 
our sea defences largely when a flooding event has actually driven us to do it. Um, you can see this seawall down near Greenwich and how it was raised uh, most notably after floods in 1928 and then again um, as the Thames Barrier was being built after the 1953 flood. We've tended to be extremely responsive in the way that we look at sea defence and build to it. In the future, we need to be much more proactive. The building of the Thames Barrier and its potential replacement in the next few decades is actually a bit of a triumph, and actually what I need to um, preface what I'm going to say next is that the Environment Agency actually has a very sensible and forward-looking plan to protect London uh, in the future. And what's it trying to protect against? Well, if we look at the storm statistics gathered over the last 100 years or so, then we can project what we believe is likely to be the one-in-a-thousand-year storm height, something over 6.5 metres, the one-in-a-hundred-year storm height, and the one-in-ten-year storm height. Now, you can see that if we raised global sea level by 50 centimetres, remember that's actually a fairly moderate range. We shift this axis along the bottom so that the one-in-a-hundred-year storm surge is now equivalent to what was the one-in-a-thousand-year storm surges. Another 50 centimetres of sea level rise and that one-in-a-thousand-year storm surge when the Thames Barrier was built will now start to come every 10 years. So we would really, under that scenario, have to consider a substantial raising of Thames protection, sea defences. Looking more globally, we have enormous sea level uh, populations now living close to coasts and in vulnerable areas. Um, and already about 10 million people a year are affected by coastal flooding. That might go up naturally without sea level rise to something like 30 million a year uh, by mid-century. If we have a substantial sea level rise on top of that, then we could easily double that. This is enormous numbers of people suffering from coastal flooding every year. Obviously, in developing countries, there are significant issues associated with survival of coastal populations. Um, and we tend to think of the developing countries as uniquely vulnerable to this. In many ways, our developed cities and developing countries have actually developed to the state that they've lost their adaptability. And this is a picture of um, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. I'm not saying that global change caused Hurricane Katrina or even indeed the flooding here. However, it's fairly clear that with sea level rise in the future, more events like this are likely to occur and with a greater frequency. So what's the role for science now? Well, I think we have... Uh, got past the point where scientists really um, should be issuing warnings of drastic climate change and really looking to our role of what we can do to help society come to terms with this. Indeed, in sea level rise uh, science, I think we have a great role in improving the quantification of risk, improving the basis for sea defence planning um, on that relatively short time scale of, let's say, 100 to 200 years, um, support for coastal adaptation, where defence is not the only answer, and the avoidance of unwarranted expenditure or expenditure that is too soon. Good predictions allow you to 
time the expenditure of sea defence infrastructure um, much more effectively. And finally, we have a role in contributing towards a fuller evaluation of the long-term impact of climate change on the planet and the commitment to long-term sea level rise that will continue even after carbon dioxide emissions have stabilised. Uh, European Union is funding at the moment a substantial programme with 24 institutes across Europe to contribute towards sea level rise projection and this is my project that I'm leading at the moment. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next speaker is John Topping, the founder and president of the Climate Institute in Washington, D.C., served as editor for portions of the IPCC first assessment report and was recognized for his contribution in the 2007 award of the Nobel Peace Prize to the IPCC. Mr. Topping will talk about recent research highlighting the importance of reducing non-CO2 shorter-lived climate forces and how they can significantly reduce the cause of warming in the near future. Please put your hands together for John Topping. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Vaughan's uh, presentation, I think, underscored the urgency of acting, and uh, what I'm going to do here is uh, pick up on something where I, I want to compliment the World Preservation Foundation and Dodds for uh, their prescience, really, in a couple of regards. One, of uh, you know, focusing very much on the role of agriculture and food systems, uh, really, in the whole climate issue. This has really tended to be underplayed very much in most of the discussions. Uh, and uh, uh, also, uh, on recognizing the importance of moving on uh, non uh, uh, or shorter live greenhouse gases, things other than uh, carbon dioxide. Not, not that we don't want to move on carbon dioxide, but if we wait and we focus only on carbon dioxide, all the worst things that uh, it were projected by uh, Dr. Vaughn on the high end would probably happen. And it's one of the reasons why uh, Micronesia, one of the you know, very vulnerable island countries, has really been very active in the UN in pushing for uh, action on, uh, on black carbon. I'm grateful uh, to uh, Dr. Michael McCracken, our chief scientist uh, who also ran the U.S. National Assessment and for four years headed the International Association of Meteorology and Atmospheric Sciences, and uh, my colleague uh, John Michael Cross for uh, developing uh, some fairly interesting graphics to uh, illustrate the, uh, you know, the opportunities and the need to uh, act. Uh, first, uh, uh, you'll see uh, using the business-as-usual scenario. BAU essentially is what happens if you don't have climate-conscious policies but you assume a certain amount of natural energy efficiency that would happen with the development of the world economy. Uh, and you, as you can see, there are legacy greenhouse emissions, primarily CO2 from the you know, past century. Uh, some would be uh, longer-life uh, greenhouse gases like nitrous oxide, some chlorofluorocarbons, which you know, still persist even though we've uh, moved aggressively under the Montreal Protocol. There would be rapid increases uh, under business as usual in CO2, but also uh, from methane, uh, which would be associated both with uh, agricultural activity and energy activity, from tropospheric ozone, uh, which is uh, essentially a product of uh, uh, a variety of carbon monoxide, uh, methane, uh, hydrocarbons uh, in the presence of, of, of NOx, essentially uh, uh, creating something that is uh, dangerous both to uh, human health and to agricultural crops. Uh, you know, it's what you know, we tend to think of as smog in uh, urban areas and so on. 
uh, and then uh, some other greenhouse gases, nitrous oxide and a variety of others uh, here. Black carbon is something that really was ignored largely in the climate debate until the last couple of years. It's probably where we can make the biggest difference uh, in, in the near term. I mean, you know, this is essentially soot in, you know, particles uh, that are a great danger to human health. Uh, because they're only up for a week or two at a time, the tendency was to not factor them in. But the problem is they're constantly replenished. If cook stoves don't change, if the urban transportation doesn't change, if the industrial practices don't change, those particles are are replenished readily. And uh, on the other hand, if they do change, uh, you, you can make a huge difference in radiative forcing very quickly while also having very positive impacts on human health. There's also a huge inertia within the energy systems and also to some extent within the agricultural systems of the world. Uh, in the U.S., uh, interestingly, in the last a uh, couple of years, uh, there's been a dramatic drop in CO2 levels uh, from 2007 to 2009, about a 10% per capita drop, uh, half of that due to changes in the world economy, other things really due to uh, switching of, uh, from coal to natural gas because we have a lot of available natural gas, and a variety of other things that are structural change. We have a couple of practical problems with the greenhouse system right now, uh, the trading systems formally. In the formal system, uh, one ton of methane is equated to 22 tons of CO2. But the practical problem is if, if we're concerned with the very dangerous things that could be happening soon, we probably ought to have a much higher valuation for methane. I mean, you know, many of these tipping points are really likely to happen in the lifetime of many of us in this room, not you know, in, in, in 2100. Uh, and uh, I'll give you a quick illustration here. I mean, the 1 to 22 is really looking at this over a 100-year period. But if we really look at the equation over a 20-year period, uh, uh, methane, uh, you know, could have a much higher valuation. You know, the reason for that is typically uh, you're, you're talking about a, a 12-year residence uh, in, in the atmosphere uh, versus you know, much longer terms in carbon dioxide. So in terms of what's driving the changes that would be melting the Greenland ice sheet that would be causing the uh, positive feedbacks, the metastatic climate change that may be going on in the Arctic, changed albedo, other things that are feeding on itself, uh, you know, this itself is a problem. What's interesting is while carbon dioxide is the most important single uh, constituent driving climate change, it's responsible for less than half. And because it's so persistent in the atmosphere, uh, you aren't going to make a huge dent right away. Even if you know, we could wave a magic wand, we would find carbon dioxide concentrations uh, in, and stop all emissions would still stay awfully flat, and the radiative forcing would still be very, very large. Uh, so... This uh, underscores the need to work in some other areas. Now, the fortunate thing about this is most of the other short-term uh, climate forcers are ones where there are huge human health benefits or other win-win aspects. Methane, uh, levels have been rising. Uh, last 12 uh, years in the atmosphere, it has roughly half the effect of CO2. But there are a remarkable number of win-win aspects uh, when we talk about reducing methane. 
coal miners' safety uh, from draining of the methane that all, uh, would be responsible for explosions, uh, harvesting energy from uh, gas pipeline uh, leaks, uh, from uh, avoiding flaring, uh, landfill methane uh, in the agricultural area, improved animal husbandry, and moving to a more plant-based diet, which would you know, reduce both uh, CO2 and methane uh, basis, and probably doing that primarily on a health basis. Now, black carbon plays uh, a couple of important roles. It's, it's only up for a short period of time, but it's constantly replenished. It has a warming effect that's roughly 55%, according to the, you know, the better science on this, I think is the Ramanathan Carmichael science, uh, of, of CO2. And that doesn't even include calculating the albedo effect, uh, where in the, in the Arctic uh, it, it plays a much larger role, and in the Himalayas as well, uh, they're uh, potentially impairing water supplies. But it has huge impacts on human health, and that's perhaps the key to being able to get aggressive action on this. Now, the regional effects uh, of this are, are quite large. These are you know, indications from a few scientists uh, here. Uh, the, the effects really together of uh, uh, black carbon and uh, uh, tropospheric ozone, and to some extent the reduction of the sulfates that uh, you know, happened because of you know, necessary steps we took to address acid rain and so forth. These look like the primary driver for the very, very rapid warming that has been happening uh, recently uh, within the Arctic. And uh, there's a real opportunity to make a difference here. Now, what are the opportunities from aggressive actions on black carbon? Perhaps the, uh, the most immediate would be acute decreases in the Arctic warming. And that's probably the most dangerous single thing that can happen on the planet uh, right now with respect to sea level and with respect to the possibility of, of climate feedbacks. Uh, but it also has the ability to cut down substantially the nearly 2 million lives, uh, about 1.9 million from cook stoves, uh, about 85% women and children, uh, and uh, outdoor air pollution, which kills about another 800,000 worldwide. Uh, so this can go ahead uh, aggressively, uh, and uh, at the same time, it yields very sizable climate benefits. What's interesting is if we assume, for example, a 50 percent reduction by 2050 across the board, including CO2, and an 80 percent reduction by, by the end of the century, uh, this is how things would break out. As you can see, you know, we can make a dent in CO2, and that's important. But we can make a huge dent in the other gases because of the, uh, uh, the times and so forth there, and especially so with respect to black carbon. Now, this takes us, you know, between now and, and 2040, lifetime in which, you know, many of us, you know, you know, would hope to be around for much of this time. This is really the critical time, I think, for a lot of these tipping points. Uh, and the first is business as usual, and then the second is the, the aggressive reductions. If we do this, we really have a chance of uh, avoiding uh, absolutely catastrophic climate change. Right now, the two most interesting efforts underway are clean cook stove uh, efforts. The UN Foundation and Shell Foundation and others have worked uh, very much on this, uh, where you know the primary motivation is really saving people's lives, but at the same time, there will be you know, real benefits to the climate. In Manila, there's a fascinating effort underway right now involving an Australian firm uh, that uh, is retrofitting jeepneys, working with the Jeepney Owners Association, using voluntary emission reduction credits 
Jeepney drivers die a lot sooner than others, uh, and the pollution levels are very high as a result of this. Hopefully some of these things through the voluntary emission reduction credit systems will happen. Now, at the same time we move on black carbon, it's important uh, that industrial countries have to move aggressively on it as well. In the industrial countries, we can strengthen diesel standards, and we're starting to do that. We can also take off-road vehicles or retrofit some of the older vehicles that don't meet the standards, increase industrial energy recycling cogeneration, which harvests both CO2 and also uh, additional particulates, and then uh, work aggressively through the Arctic Council uh, on, on these areas. I would like to suggest is it's important to get consumer uh, follow-through on this. In Mexico, uh, CRISPR Tekel Interactive Network is pulling together a series of climate theaters like planetariums for climate education. There are now three. There will be about 11 by the end of the year. The first of these is the state of Puebla. The state of Puebla has become the first state in the world to move aggressively on black carbon, uh, and uh, I think that's important. We need this kind of action, and we really need to do this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Chris Williamson is the Shadow Minister for Communities and Local Government, and high among his priorities are measures to combat climate change, including energy efficiency. If you put your hands together, please. Well, uh, thanks very much indeed for that introduction, uh, Chair. I'm merely a uh, relatively newly elected Member of Parliament, was elected in uh, May this year, and have been... uh, to much to my surprise, actually, uh, promoted to the, the front bench covering uh, local uh, government. But certainly I recognise that uh, climate change is the biggest challenge facing uh, the planet. Uh, and as politicians, we've, we've absolutely got to grasp that uh, nettle. The problem is, of course, that uh, politics, given the electoral cycle, is uh, to a large extent based on short-termism. And uh, it's the next election that people are most uh, concerned about. And, you know, you can have the best policies in the world on climate change, on social justice, on a range of different issues. But if you're not in power to implement those policies, then they uh, are not worth uh, very much in in the end. So for me, I think that the key thing has got to be to try and build a cross-party consensus, similar in a way, really, to the cross-party consensus that that was developed on uh, the welfare state and on the National Health Service. It's more important that we've got to try and develop that kind of cross-party consensus on this whole uh, uh, agenda. Now, the government has said they want to be the greenest government ever, and they've, uh, as you probably know, launched the... uh, the green paper on the Green Deal, and um, hopefully that will move things uh, forward in terms of uh, taking this, this agenda on. Uh, my background is in local government, and I do believe there is a lot that local government can do uh, around climate change. Uh, and certainly in my uh, new role as the Shadow Minister for uh, Local Governments, I will be promoting uh, the role of, of local councils to actually do whatever they can to, uh, to help. Now, that's not just in terms of local government getting its own house in order, reducing its carbon emissions, though so there's much they can do uh, in that regard in terms of how they deal with, with waste and so on and you know, reducing the, uh, the need for landfill. And there is a statutory driver on that in, in any uh, event uh, that uh, it, it, obviously local authorities are um, moving that forward as a, as a consequence. But uh, there's more that they, I think, can do in terms of their whole place-shaping agenda. And when I was leader of Derby City Council, we set ourselves a target to make Derby a sustainable city by 2025, self-sufficient in clean green energy. And we wanted to build a consensus 
with uh, other public sector organisations, but also, most importantly, really, the wider general public and the uh, business community in, in Derby. And uh, some of the initiatives that we worked on were initiatives that actually helped to win the hearts and minds of, uh, of businesses in the uh, city particularly small and medium-sized enterprises, looking at how we could, through energy efficiency measures, for example, um, improve their bottom line. And I think we did you know, win a lot of people over to uh, what we were trying to achieve. It also included a radical transformation of public transport in our city. So there is a big issue that we need to, I think, address there. We've got to actually you know, tackle this uh, on a cross-party uh, basis, it seems to me. We need to try and build that cross-party consensus. I will continue to do what I can in that regard. But we've also, I think, got to win the hearts and minds of the wider general public. Uh, and that means, I think, um, looking at how we can encourage people to look at lifestyle, how they can encourage people to perhaps eat less meat, given that the livestock industry does contribute to a large extent to uh, climate change uh, uh, emissions. We've got to find a better way forward, I think, where we can... Um, see people's um, livelihoods, their lifestyles, their standard of living not being um, diminished over much, that we can try and keep people in employment. And I do think there are some opportunities in, in that regard in terms of the whole uh, new green jobs which could be created uh, that will, I think, help to address that conundrum which can be uh, created. And I do think we are beginning to, uh, as I say, develop that um, cross-party consensus. Certainly that's what I'll be uh, seeking to do. And Obviously, I'm just a layperson. It's a topic I'm, I'm very passionate about. I'm in, not in the same league as the, as the eminent speakers that, that have spoken uh, today, but certainly I would be keen to work with, uh, with, with people in this audience on the platform today to help me actually make the arguments in, in the House and with colleagues to try and you know, win people over to what I think is the most significant challenge that, that we face as humankind. So hopefully um, uh, we, can, we can move things uh, forward, and, and with your support, we will make a difference. Thank you, Chris. We're now going to have um, Professor Simone. Now, interestingly, of course, John Topping in his speech touched on the fact that reducing CO2 alone is not sufficient to address climate change in the near term. And uh, Professor Simone is going to be speaking about the presence of black carbon in Antarctica with its high global warming potential, which is a great concern and its reduction as an important strategy for reducing global warming. So we're going to have this speaker and then Dr. Esther van der Vogt. So. Put your hands together, please. Good morning. Thank you for the chance to talk a little bit about the work in Antarctica and the question of black carbon. In some ways, I may add information to the lecture of uh, Mr. Topping. Maybe I should begin that uh, presentation with a statement that is becoming clear here. One of the greatest difficulties for the general public to understand climate change has been too much emphasis on the question of greenhouse gases. All the important factors are involved. And this is the case of black carbon that I'm going to talk a little bit now. So, wh what is black carbon? First, it originates from the incomplete burning of biomass or fossil fuel. And is basically formed by small high solar radiation absorbing particles. And by now, I'm going to show the evidences. We know that they are spread from Arctic to Antarctica, elsewhere in the world. Uh, there are very tiny particles between 0.01 to 1 micron in the atmosphere. As Mr. Topping told you, 
It stays in the atmosphere just a couple of weeks, but it's available to disperse it at longer ranges. Uh, BCE, or black carbon, belongs to short-lived pollutants. And then comes the most important point, is the second most important contributor to the global warming. In fact, the potential of black carbon is estimated to have 55% of the radioactive forcing effect of carbon dioxide. And uh, in short, BC absorbs light and heats the atmosphere. So, along the 20th century, as we have the increase of uh, black carbon production due to the consumption of fossil fuel, developed countries have improved the efficiency of that burning and reducing it by the end of the 20th century. But not as true in a lot of countries that are industrialized at the moment. So, the thing that we have in this picture here is the main uh, places that we have biomass burning at the moment, at the year of 2009. As you can see, mainly in, in the subtropical and tropics, not only in South America, but also in Africa and Australia and uh, some countries in, like Indonesia, Malaysia, and uh, others in Southeast Asia. So uh, we can place the following question. How this kind of material can be transported to Antarctica. It seems a long way. Uh, for the last 10 years, we have changed our idea about the transport of air masses uh, from South America or from the tropics of South America to Antarctica. By now, we know that cyclonic activity is able to transport materials in a short time, in a week or so, from the main areas of biomass burning to the south, and then mainly to the northernmost part of Antarctica, that is the Antarctica Peninsula. Interesting enough is to know that as the air masses are coming south here, uh, we have uh, cold air masses going to the north, up to the south of the Amazon, of course, to balance the energy budget of the Earth. Uh, so it's a two-way uh, movement, and uh, here, I would like to do a point about uh, the impact, uh, about the places that it is really happening, this kind of biomass burning and transport into the south. It's a myth that uh, it is in the middle of the Amazon that we have biomass burning. It is happening, in fact, in the Brazilian savanna, known as Cerrado, and in the frontier between the savanna and the uh, Amazon forest. It's really related to the expansion of cash crops and cattle farm, a point that should be considering in the discussions this afternoon. So, cold air goes to the Amazon forest and biomass burning products to Antarctica. Do we, we have some evidences? That's a research result for the last uh, couple of years where we had at the same time atmospheric measurements and ice core, we collect cores, to measure black carbon in the northmost part of Antarctica. And what you can see in that graph, you have the red curve that are the number of uh, fire spots in the Amazon forest, or in the south part of the Amazon forest, and at the same time, in the same snow and ice samples, we have the concentration of black carbon 
and it really goes together. We are having the transport of black carbon to Antarctica. Important, in the Himalayas, the increase is much higher, threefold increase in black carbon from 1860 to 2000. The same thing has been observed in the Swiss Alps. Why it's important? Because black carbon impacts the surface of snow ice mass as it reduces the surface albedo, the proportion of energy that's reflected by the surface. It is increased melting, trigger albedo feedback, changes the glacier mass balance, and contributed to glacier retreat. In short, black carbon is as important as atmospheric warming for melting surfacing of the glaciers. Thank you for the attention. Thank you. And uh, our final speaker of this session is Dr. Esther van der Voet. This summer, the UN Environment Programme issued the report Assessing the Environmental Impacts of Production and Consumption. And we're delighted to welcome today one of the report's lead authors to talk about why a substantial global diet change is the only way to reduce one of the most important drivers of environmental pressures. Thank you very much. Um, actually, I work at Leiden University, the uh, Institute of Environmental Sciences. But um, as the chair said, I'm one of the authors of the, the UNEP report. Uh, the UNEP resource panel, they um, produced a report called Assessing the Environmental Impacts of Production and Consumption. Edgar Hertwich was actually the lead author of that. I was one of the co-authors. In this report, we looked at... Um, well, the various worldwide uh, categories of uh, consumption sectors and also uh, resources and materials to see, well, which one contribute most to environmental impacts. Uh, and the conclusion out of this report really was, and I will go into that uh, uh, a bit later, is that um, um, agriculture and food are really uh, important contributors to environmental impacts including but not limited to greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, well, options to reduce this were not really the topic of this uh, report. The next report will go into that in more detail. And of those options, a diet change seems to be the most effective one. So this is, uh, in brief, the topic of my uh, talk. In view of the topic of this event, the non-CO2 greenhouse gas emissions, agriculture is uh, especially a relevant sector because uh, methane is a greenhouse gas that's emitted in large quantities from uh, cattle and the climate forcing potential of methane is a lot stronger than that of uh, uh, CO2. Uh, same for laughing gas, N2O. Uh, that's emitted uh, from soils. It's a product of uh, incomplete denitrification of uh, uh, fertilizer and manure. And uh, that's an even stronger climate-forcing gas, and it's connected especially to agriculture. That does not mean that agriculture is not associated with the CO2 emissions. It is, and especially <coughs> via the energy input in the agricultural uh, chain, uh, like, for example, via fertilizer. Um, agriculture is also associated with other environmental impacts, and uh, the ones to name especially is land use and water use. This is one of the well, results out of the, the UNEP report. Here you can see the contribution of the various consumption categories to greenhouse gas emissions uh, worldwide. And here you can see the, the green 
part, that's uh, food. It does not just include the agricultural sector, but also the upchain, the production of fertilizer, the production of uh, uh, other agrochemicals, the agricultural practice like driving around in tractors. That's all included. Also the food processing in those uh, percentages. So it's significant. Um, another um, angle to take is uh, uh, resources or materials, and that's where these pictures come from. They are not for the world, but for the EU um, uh, countries. Here you can see uh, the leftmost bar um, represents just kilograms of consumption, and the largest part is minerals for construction, so it's sand and gravel, basically. Agricultural materials you can see in the red and orange a little uh, higher, the red one being the crops and the orange the animal products. Uh, but if you calculate not just the kilograms but the environmental impact connected to it, you can see the size of those different contributions of the materials change. Uh, for the global warming potential, you can see uh, that... Uh, well, the sand and gravel contributes almost nothing. But for agriculture, the bars are a bit bigger than in the kilogram ones. Land use competition, of course, agriculture dominates since it's uh, by far the largest land user of the, the sectors. Um, and then there's a, a human toxicity bar. And in the end, the rightmost bar represents all environmental impacts added to each other. And here you can see that agriculture and especially animal products um, contributes a lot. Now, if you look a little below that, uh, this picture represents greenhouse gas emissions of agricultural products in kilogram CO2 equivalent per kilogram. Uh, so on the left, you see a lot of different crops, while on the right, you see the animal products. And if you just look at it through your eyelashes, you can see that the greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram are a lot higher for these animal products than they are for the crops. And also you can see that there are a lot of differences. So one animal product is not equal to another one. Um, these two pictures, the, the leftmost uh, represents the worldwide consumption of different agricultural product groups. Uh, you can see the cereals on the left and the vegetables and fruit and then the oil crops. And on the right you have the animal products, meat, fish and dairy. In kilograms the consumption is high for the vegetable products. But if you uh, multiply that with the greenhouse gas emission uh, per kilogram, you can see that they are almost equal. Um, so although in kilograms uh, the consumption of uh, meat and dairy is, is less, in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions, it's uh, uh, equal. How come? Well, one of the reasons for that is that in these calculations, the upchain is included. So the greenhouse gas emissions for animal products are not just caused by the animal production sector, but they also include the production of uh, uh, animal feed, uh, and all the upchain processes that come before that. Well, summing up uh, the evidence, so to say, um, we can see that, that agriculture is a large contributor to global environmental impacts, including but not limited to greenhouse gas emissions, and that the share of animal products in this is important and also is increasing. These are um, differences between regions in the world in, in uh, food consumption, you can see that the OECD countries, the rich countries, they consume the most uh, animal products. It's the brown and the blue bar, it's uh, the meats and the, and the milk. It's about half of the diet. 
in uh, Russia and the former Eastern European countries, also a lot of meat is consumed. But if you look at Asia, it's, it's a lot less. The contribution to the total food package of milk and meats is, is a lot less. Uh, partly this has to do with, uh, with uh, welfare, with how rich people are, but not completely. If you look at this one, you see that within those regions in the world, there is a, a huge variety in the amount of meat that's actually eaten. Even in the OECD countries, it varies from 140 kilograms per capita to 20 kilograms per capita. So this is a huge difference, and you can see similar differences in the other regions of the world. So on the one hand, it, it uh, shows that uh, diets are really uh, sort of independent uh, of, of income, of welfare. On the other hand, it also gives the message that you can be uh, rich and have a lot of uh, welfare without eating a lot of meat. And you can see also in the richer countries that, that it becomes fashionable to have more uh, vegetarian aspects in your diet. So that gives some hope that actually something can be done about it. Thank you. We've already heard about what shorter-lived climate forces are, and our next speaker is Dr. Xian Hui Ku, co-founder of the World Preservation Foundation and a renowned chemical and engineering sciences researcher based in Singapore. Dr. Ku's main research areas are life cycle assessment of greenhouse gases and the carbon footprint of food, bioenergy, and strategies to reduce global warming. Today, she'll be talking about the structural causes of non-CO2, shorter-lived climate forces. Please, would you put your hands together whilst holding your cups for our next speaker. This year, the world watched in shock and sympathy as we witnessed Russia try to put out massive fires and as a fifth of Pakistan was submerged underwater. Many of the world's developing nations who are the most vulnerable to climate change has been calling for global average temperature increase to be no more than 1.5 degrees. We need some urgent solutions to stop the trend of mean rising temperatures and prevent any further climate-related disasters. We also now realize that reductions in carbon dioxide, which was at first all the efforts put to stop climate change, will not create cooling in time. Researchers and engineers, including myself, have carried out extensive research on carbon capture and sequestration technologies for more than a decade. I can confidently conclude that we are far from having a technology that is advanced enough or that is affordable enough to even start to bring us towards a carbon-neutral economy. And supposing, just supposing we are able to create such an advanced system, one that can extract all the carbon dioxide out of the air right now, we have only just solved part of the problem. The bigger and more urgent magnitude of climate change lies in reducing shorter-lived greenhouse gases. Our understanding of climate science has evolved in the past few years. Perhaps the best solution suggested by scientists for the fastest recovery of the climate is to reduce shorter-term climate forces, methane, black carbon, and ground-level ozone. These gases exist in the atmosphere for a shorter period of time than carbon dioxide. 
Ground level ozone lasts for about 22 days, black carbon for about months, and methane 12 years. Reducing these shorter-lived climate forces can lead to immediate climate benefits because the Earth's climate system responds quickly when these pollutants are removed from the air. And one of the most powerful ways of bringing these emissions down is through dietary changes. According to the UN, the primary source of human-caused methane is livestock. From these charts, we can see that in the United Kingdom, 43% of methane emissions come from livestock, and in Brazil, 75%. There are suggestions to capture methane and convert the gas into bioenergy. Unfortunately, this approach has to be applied in closed factory farms to make it easier to capture the gas from animal waste. This suggestion will only create another problem since closed-based factory farms are breeding grounds for all sorts of disease and illnesses. They also do not address the other environmental challenges created by animal proteins, including land use change, high water usage, deforestation, nitrous oxides, and biodiversity loss. From a life cycle food chain perspective, such approach is known as shifting the environmental burden from one compartment to another or from one type of pollution to another. Around 50% of the black carbon that was deposited around Antarctica was from the biomass burning found in South America. When black carbon is deposited on ice and snow, it absorbs solar energy and accelerates the melting of glaciers. This further adds to the warming of the planet. Large amounts of black carbon, carbon dioxide and methane gases are released from the burning of forests or rather from the destroying of what's considered the precious lungs of the planet. And the reason for deforestation? To create land for cattle grazing and for growing soya directed to feeding these animals. It has been estimated that cattle ranching is the cause of between 70 to 80% of deforestation in the Amazon. We can clearly see by now that the livestock sector and dietary patterns are key contributors to a range of critical environmental problems we face today. If these non-carbon dioxide gases continue to be emitted, the ecosystem of this planet that has supported life for eons of years is on the brink of spinning out of control. The logical, simple, and practical solution to reduce methane, black carbon soot, and ground-level ozone pollution is to shift away from animal farming or to shift away from meat-based diet to an entirely plant-based diet. Plant-based proteins offer a wide range of environmental benefit from every angle of its life cycle perspective, from farm to food. A single-level food chain in place of a double-level food chain have the advantages to reduce pollution, free up land for restoring the forest, offer health benefits, and ensure food security. The Netherlands Environmental Assessment Agency reported that, based on a diet with no ruminant animals, the cost of climate change can be reduced by 50%. However, by switching to a diet with completely no animal products, including no fish, 
the cost of mitigating climate change will drop by more than 80%. We are facing a whole spectrum of problems caused by climate change, from atmospheric emissions to water stress and contamination, and from food shortage to rising health costs. Solving each and every one of these individually will cost a lot of time and a lot of money. One simple step solution that is affordable to everyone and doable is to switch from a meat-based to a plant-based diet that will in turn resolve many of the other associated problems at hand. Each and every one of us contribute to climate change, including myself. But we can also be the ones who control climate change. Eating plant-based foods is something that is easy to do and have a very significant positive effect. The World Preservation Foundation is calling for the support of everyone to control climate change by increasing plant-based meals in our diet. Thank you. Now, many people say that water will be the new oil of the 21st century, and to ensure food security and basic comforts, we need to preserve and use the water that we have sustainably. Professor Ian Hoxter is the Professor in Water Management at the University of Trent in the Netherlands and co-founder and scientific director of the Water Footprint Network, and he'll talk about his pioneering work in the water footprint of our daily consumer goods, including why meat is driving water scarcity. Thank you very much. Everybody knows carbon footprint, but who does know water footprint? I will try to explain in, in, a, in this talk what is water footprint and how it also relates to energy and our diet, our daily commodities. And I will put a bit of a focus on uh, the UK because we are now in the UK. I come from the Netherlands. Uh, but actually the numbers are often very similar in other Western societies. Uh, I speak on behalf of the Water Footprint Network, which is a uh, network of, of partners around the world from different sectors, including large companies, governments, uh, international organizations like UNESCO, FAO, uh, and also uh, large NGOs like the World Wildlife Fund and the Nature Conservancy, etc., etc. So this is a, a very multi-sector uh, uh, international organization aiming at sustainable, equitable, and efficient water use throughout the world by awareness raising, by using the water footprint, and particularly in the end by uh, aiming at uh, governments setting uh, water footprint reduction goals, just like with carbon footprint. Uh, and not just governments, but in the end also uh, companies, so that companies deliver products with a low or even zero water footprint. First of all, I will say very briefly something about actually what is water scarcity, what is water pollution for those who are not aware of that. I will explain the water footprint of a few daily commodities, focus on meat and bioenergy, and finally see what we can do. Signs of water scarcity are everywhere, although living in the UK, you may imagine what do I have to do with water scarcity. Actually, this is your water scarcity. This is in Spain. You import in the UK uh, strawberries uh, from this area in southern Spain, the Cota Doniana National Park. This used to be a wetland, very nice area. Just upstream, the water is being used to irrigate strawberries, so the water doesn't end up in the wetland. So this is the wetland today. 
this is also uh, your area. This is in Central Asia. Uh, this is where you get the cotton from. Uh, so what you see here is the former Aral Sea uh, in Central Asia. Uh, there used to be uh, rivers arriving in that sea, so that's why it's a sea. It is being fed by, by rivers. No more. The water is being used to irrigate cotton upstream, so the water doesn't end up in the sea, so the sea is drying. The chemicals have entered the sea, are now lying on, on the bottom, so we have huge human health problems there. Then uh, this is humid. It's uh, in, in Brazil, in, in, in the Amazon forest. This is where uh, your meat comes from. Your meat comes from, from the UK, yes, but the animals, they have to eat, and they eat the soybean from Brazil, partly. So the, the, the water footprint of your meat is, is, is over here. So the green water, the, the water that, that is coming from the rain, uh, is being used here not to sustain a rainforest, but to sustain your meat consumption. It takes about 30 million cubic meters of water per year to produce soybean in Brazil for export to just only the UK. And this is about equivalent to half a million Olympic swimming pools. So this is the amount of water being used over there to get you the meat you like. Or maybe not you personally, but in the UK. Then apart from water scarcity, uh, we have water pollution. We have the water pollution from the industries. We have the water pollution from the households. But we also have the pollution from agriculture, which is often much more difficult to, to handle because it's what we call diffuse pollution. And it ends up in the groundwater and the surface water system, the pesticides, the, the, the fertilizers, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and they cause huge water pollution problems in, in our water bodies. And in the end, they affect biodiversity, they affect human health. The water footprint of, of the average consumer in the UK is not at home. So forget about this water-saving toilet. Forget about this shower head. It's not where you save the water. Don't believe that you somehow contribute to reducing your water footprint substantially because the water footprint is in the supermarket. If you go to the supermarket, then it's where you determine what is your water footprint. Your water footprint is invisible. It's, it's what you buy, the food you buy, the cotton you buy, etc., etc. 3,400 liters per day uh, is the water footprint of, of the average UK citizens related to the consumption of agriculture products. It relates to 150 liters per day at home. So this is really small water use at home if you compare to the water use elsewhere. But actually, it's much more interesting because it's not just outside your home, it's outside your country. Because 60 to 65% of your water footprint is not in the UK, it is elsewhere. It is in the Cota Doniana National Park in southern Spain. It is in Central Asia, in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. It is in Thailand for the rice. It's in Ghana for the chocolate. It's in, uh, in, in Brazil because of the soybean for the meat. So these places that we know from the news, the water scarcity, water pollution, they are your places. This is where your products come from and where your footprint lies. Um, technically, we, we distinguish three uh, components. We have a green water footprint relates to the volume of rainwater evaporated. We have the blue water footprint which relates to the volume of surface or groundwater consumed. And we have the gray water footprint which refers to the volume of water being polluted. So we have developed uh, very strict mechanisms and 
to, to calculate those footprints so that there is no confusion about precisely what it means if we say the water footprint is 100 liters per day. The water footprint of the UK citizen can be shown on a global map, as, as, as shown here. So the intensity of the blue collar shows the amount of water use in those different places in the world, the amount of water use for making products that are being consumed in the UK. So we did this kind of analysis for all countries in the world based on uh, models to estimate the, the water use in agriculture, but also in industries and households, and based on trade statistics, of course. And here you immediately see where are the hotspots of the UK water consumption. If we just look at this slice of, of bread, which is a typical Dutch sli slice of bread, it's 40 liters of water to make that. So you can hardly imagine it, but it's a, it's, it's a lot of water. But it continues. If we look at other products, like tomato, it's 180 liters of water. And we know tomatoes do have a carbon footprint, like in the Netherlands, where they are grown in greenhouses. It costs a lot of energy to warm these greenhouses. So the tomatoes have a carbon footprint, but they also have a water footprint. In the Netherlands, they have a high carbon footprint, not so big water footprint, actually. But if you go to Spain, it's exactly the reverse, because we don't have this huge energy import into tomatoes as we have in the Netherlands. We have a high water footprint uh, in Spain because there is no water, so it needs to be pumped from the groundwater service. So this also shows that sometimes there is a, to be made a trade-off between carbon and energy because sometimes the carbon footprint of a product is really uh, a concern. Other times it's the water footprint. And even one tomato from Spain cannot be compared to one tomato from the Netherlands in this respect. We need to know, in fact, where, what, what are we eating and what is the, the underlying um, water footprint. If you look at the cow, then it's 3 million, and this is a global average, I have to emphasize, 3 million liters of water to make this cow. And this is not because the cow drinks such a lot of water. No, actually, 99% of the total water footprint of the cow refers to the water needed to make the feed of the cow. And if you then look at what it means for one piece of, of beef, then we have nearly 16,000 liters of water, global average, that is needed to make this piece of beef. And if you then uh, translate it to your, your favorite hamburger, it comes down to 2,400 liters of water for one hamburger. And this is the total. It includes also the water for the bread, for the lettuce, etc. But most of the water footprint that you show is really for the beef that is there nicely sitting in between. If we look at uh, a vegetarian diet in industrialized countries, we see that most of the calories that you get are from vegetable origin, not from animal origin. However, the, the water footprint, if you look at the liters required per kilocalorie, animal origin uh, calories, they cost much more water than vegetable origin calories, about five times more. So that means that if you look at the total water footprint related to your food consumption, most of the water footprint related to your food is because of the ingredients of your diet, which are of animal origin. If you look at the vegetarian diet, we compare a diet with the same calories. However, now we have much less animal origin, still some dairy product, but no meat anymore. Then you see a switch in terms of the total water footprint from 3,600 liters per day to 2,300. So a very substantial difference. If you look then in developing countries, you see 
In general, the water footprints are less because the people eat less, eat less calories. These are the global average values taken from FAO in our own statistics. But what is now happening is a move from bottom right to the top left. So you see an inevitable increase of this water footprint in the coming future since developing countries get more developed, eat more meat, and the statistic has been shown before, uh, meat consumption worldwide is increasing rapidly still. I have to emphasize, however, that one piece of beef is not the other piece of beef. You don't see the difference here, but they are very different because it depends on where they come from. If you have grazing systems, the water footprint is mostly green water, rainwater, it's mostly local. The other extreme from industrial system-based beef. The water footprint is not only green, but partly blue. This is water taken from the surface water. So this leads to groundwater levels decline. Uh, this leads to rivers uh, becoming emptied. And often it's not local, but far off in, in water-scarce areas. This was about meat, but let's, let's look at bioenergy. It's very interesting to see that in knowledge we are fragmented. So there are people knowing about energy and there are people knowing about water. Same in our policy. There are people responsible for water policy, there are people responsible for energy policy. And these people somehow never talk and, and definitely they don't understand each other. So what you see is that in the water sector, the developments are such that every liter of water being supplied is becoming more and more energy intensive. So solving the water problems is possible, but it will cost more energy per unit of water because the, the, the water is pumped deeper, it's taken from further away, large infrastructure projects to supply water are being installed, uh, desalination is, is being promoted, it costs a lot of energy. So the water sector is becoming more energy intensive. The energy sector, on the other hand, is becoming more and more water intensive because the energy sector tries to become more sustainable. And what is now a nice solution is bioenergy. And bioenergy is precisely that type of energy that is going to create a large water problem in the future. And this is what you see here. The water footprint of bioenergy is huge. There is no way to ever replace, in a substantial way, fuels, fossil fuels by biofuels. Just forget about it. It's impossible to think about the amount of land and water we need to make all that biofuel. And having said that, I have to say there is much difference, of course, because the sugar beet differs usually from Yatrofa, which is another crop on the right. So there are big differences still. If we go into biofuel, then have a careful look on what kind of, of source we use and how water efficient is that. So what we see here is an interesting picture that if we are going to drive on bioenergy, we use a lot of liter of water per, per kilometer, passenger kilometer, always much more than if we walk or if we bike. And of course, we should invent certain forms of, of transport that are more efficient than walking and biking, not less efficient. If you look at wind energy, if you look at, at solar energy, then the amount of energy per kilometer is much less. So this is the direction we should take. So what can we do? Companies can uh, at least uh, adhere to certain shared terminology and calculation standards. In, in 2011, February, uh, there will be the new global standard on water footprint assessment. And what is very important is that companies give product transparency so that we know at least what we are buying. Uh, that we have benchmarks so that we know what direction we can go, 
and finally quantitative footprint reduction targets throughout the supply chain. Uh, governments, they can of course uh, look at their own organizational water footprint and as I said before, we need that coherence between water policy, energy policy, but also obviously agriculture policy and even trade policy, etc., etc. So to kind of summarize, stop the waste of blue water, we can simply go to zero blue water footprint in industries by recycling. We can, by using irrigation techniques uh, better than before, uh, reduce the blue water footprint easily globally by 50% make better use of green water so we don't need to have the blue water anymore, and reduce the gray water footprint globally to zero by organic farming and in uh, industries by just no pollution, recycling. Um, I would like you to refer for more information to the uh, Water Footprint Network website, which is uh, waterfootprint.org. You can download all kinds of, of publications over there. And finally, I would like to invite you to go there to calculate your on water footprint. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Toivo Jokola, a former co-editor of an award-winning Swedish journal on social matters and co-author of the paper Climate Change and Livestock, along with Jens Holm, a former Swedish member of the European Parliament. Uh, he will now talk about how huge subsidies and demand for animal products are a cause of food insecurity and hunger in developing countries. Please put your hands together. Yeah, and here you have the web address to the report. And as you can see, uh, it has been translated into several different languages. Jens, member of the Swedish Parliament, former member of the European Parliament, and I, we, we co-wrote this report in 2006. And, of course, a lot of things has, has happened since, since then, both on an international scale and when it comes to EU policies. But the main patterns are, are still there. This report isn't only on, on the EU subsidies to the livestock industry. It, it also covers uh, some graphics and, uh, and some information about uh, uh, things that we have been told about earlier today. So I don't intend to repeat what Esther van der Voort and Sieng Ko and Arjen Hoekstra have said, but... What can be said is that meat consumption or livestock production and consumption as a whole, including dairy products and so forth, has a huge impact both on climate change, uh, on water scarcity, on deforestation, and, and even hunger issues. What's actually happening is that the, the EU, within its common agricultural policy, still supports uh, livestock production with an enormous amounts of money every year. Jens and I cal calculated that in 2006, the, the total figure was, was uh, 3.5 billion euros uh, that year in su support to livestock production. Then if you include uh, fodder crops and stuff like that, the, the figure is, of course, going to be much higher, but uh, it's hard to separate those uh, support figures or subsidies figures from the ones that go directly to, to animal industry. Uh, what can be said is that there are two 
basic kinds of, uh, of subsidies from the European Union to livestock agriculture. First of all, direct subsidies support money that is paid out to, to farmers who have a certain kind of animal product that they produce, basically. They get their share of extra money for producing what they're producing. And apart from that, there's a category called interventions. And this is a very special one. I, I don't know if you've heard of it before, but the, the basic idea behind that is that uh, the EU uh, gives money to, to farmers for storing the, the surplus of a given product at a guaranteed price. And this takes place independently of if it's an animal product or not, of course. But uh, given the devastating effects of the, the increasing livestock production, it's, it's quite remarkable that billions are paid every, every year to this. And another kind of intervention support that is perhaps even more remarkable is that uh, money is given out as export subsidies that uh, European farmers are, or the European livestock industries is paid to, uh, to export their, their products to, to countries outside the, the European Union. And uh, this constitutes part of a quite remarkable uh, negative trade spiral. If we take the country of Brazil, for instance, as it, uh, it was mentioned before, Brazil is uh, one of the uh, world's largest importers of, of dairy products, and uh, huge amounts of money are uh, given out every year to, to support the export of, uh, for instance, milk powder from the European Union to Brazil. And that makes, of course, these products cheaper than they otherwise would be. So it puts a, a downward pressure on market prices in Brazil and make it relatively more favorable for the producers in Brazil to produce for the, the world market uh, than producing for, for the local market. You get the logic in that. And at the same time, as we've heard about uh, huge amounts of soybeans are produced in, in Brazil. Uh, production levels between 1965 and 1997 uh, increased by, by 50 times in that country. And a lot of this is exported as uh, animal feed to the European countries. So this is like the quintessence of a devastating trade spiral. Uh, what can be said, of course, is that once, once upon a time there, there was a logic behind these subsidies to, to European farmers. It's basically some kind of post-World War II phenomenon where farmers got money in order to, to secure that there wouldn't be any, any food shortage in the near future. But this system has survived and there's no tendency of removing it although a number of politicians and, and officials, even ones that we interviewed in our report, say that these subsidies are, are going to, to be removed. But it seems to be a, a very long-term project. Some subsidies have decreased since 
we wrote the, the report in 2006, especially direct subsidies. The total figure was 3.5 billion euros for all kinds of subsidies in 2006, all kinds of uh, livestock subsidies. And in 2010, the, the figure seems to be 2.83 billion euros. But uh, at the same time as the direct subsidies decrease, there are also increases in, in interventions, e export subsidies and so forth. It goes down on some animal products, but for instance, it goes up on, on dairy products. I guess it's based on the economic situation, basically. It, it adjusts to, to world market prices. But the, the basic thing is that, that this uh, destructive trend <laughs> survives. The basic conclusion is that this extremely dis destructive thing must be, must be stopped, of course, and it has also been de demanded very recently in the UN meeting in, in Nagoya back in, in October. Uh, the meeting agreed that it's important to phase out environmentally destructive subsidies. So we'll see if that has any deeper influence on this. Thank you very much. Okay, it's, uh, it's two minutes to 12, so if we've got one quick question that perhaps somebody would like to ask. Thank you, Neville Grant, United Nations Association. Beef is being given a pretty bad press today. What about fish? It very much depends on what kind of fish, whether it comes from the sea or from the freshwater system, whether it is natural fish or from a, a, an artificial fish uh, production system. Uh, essentially, once we start going into really intensive fish production systems, we generally see uh, the new problems uh, popping up again because also uh, fish they need to eat. And uh, fish in artificial systems on land, they need to be refreshed with fresh water. So very preliminary research, I have to emphasize that, shows that uh, it definitely will not be the solution to meat. There are similar and, and other types of problems attached to that again. The most powerful thing I've learned today is the um, is a camaraderie that exists in the whole movement towards a meat-free uh, society on planet Earth. That was one of the most wonderful feelings I had today. But apart from that, there was uh, great evidence shown by really, really um, uh, well-known scientists uh, showing that uh, these uh, intellectual inspirations that I've known about for a long time, whereby I knew that you know, the eating of meat was destroying the planet, uh, they exposed that to us in very, very clear scientific terms, and some of it was quite shocking. The thing I didn't realise is that dairy and um, uh, cheese aren't particularly very good for your health either. I kind of known before about the meat production being unenvironmental. Un It'd be have a huge impact if more people went vegetarian. I mean everyone would be lighter and happier and they wouldn't need so much medication, wouldn't need such huge health care. There's huge implications. And I think that the lady from America, Lisa Bloom, 
she's so beautiful and thin <laughs> and lives on a vegan diet. Have you got a walking advert like that? It's, whoa. <laughs> Your goal is to end all animal farming. Why do you believe this is needed and how do we go about doing it? A more compelling reason, and I think one that really should drive the political decisions, is that it is by far the most environmentally destructive activity that humans are engaged in. And of course there's the methane emissions associated with farming and all the other sorts of greenhouse gas emissions associated with it, but it's a huge opportunity to deal with this looming climate catastrophe, basically, um, and uh, I think by far the easiest way to do it. It's animal farming, period, the whole shebang. You don't solve the problem by saying, okay, well we'll just you know, have this little idyllic farm where uh, the cows are wandering around eating grass and their manure is fertilizing the plants and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't solve the problem. I think that the way that we treat the animals that we eat is a very terrifying reflection of actually how we're capable of extreme cruelty to human beings as well. And if we start recognizing each and every one of us, what is actually the impact of our food on our plate, we would actually be able to live far more peacefully within ourselves. I think if we were all more aware of the impact of the food that we're eating every day has on our health, on the planet, on the animals, and on the ability for this planet to sustain human life, then we would be a far more informed planetary being, and therefore we might prevent the crises which we're seeing that are imminent. Thank you.